Well, I want to tell you guys about a distinct memory that I had when I was in elementary school. I um, was with a friend who was telling me that she and her family were getting ready to go to church. Uh, Now, I don't remember if it was for Christmas or Easter, but I knew it was one of the big holidays. And as she started telling me, I had this incredible fear come over me because I couldn't remember the difference between Christmas and Easter. I mean, Christmas was presents and Santa, and Easter was chocolate and bunnies. That's what Christmas and Easter were for me. Now, if you were raised in the church, you think that's ridiculous because you've always known the difference between Christmas and Easter. But in this moment, I had like panic wash over me because if she asked me, I would look totally foolish because I wouldn't know how to answer her question. And so I just started trying to grab for images of what the different holidays were, because then if I could remember something associated with the holiday, maybe I could remember what it was. So I started with Easter, and again, I thought of chocolate and bunnies, and I thought, well, that's not going to be helpful. I don't know what that means religiously. And so then I turned to Christmas, and I saw all of the manger scenes, and I saw all of the plastic babies that all of the plastic wise men were standing over, and I was like, that's it. It has to do with the birth of a child. So I grabbed onto that. Well, it wasn't until I was 13 that I started to know that this child was Jesus. God who had become a man and who had come to dwell with us, to live with us. And I remember when I was 13, I I heard this story for the first time or at least the first time I really remember it. And I remember thinking, what kind of God becomes a baby? And what kind of baby has the power to save me? Now, I didn't know the answers to those things, but as a 13-year-old, I knew my soul desperately needed saving. So I didn't really care how it all worked out. I just knew I wanted it. And so I said, yes, I'm in for whatever this baby's got for me. And so I uh, started my journey as a Christian. Well, as I grew and I started to learn more about who Jesus was and is, I started to learn all of these astonishing things about how God did something so extravagant for us that he became a human for us. But then a funny thing happened. As I kept moving along in my faith journey, it just became normal. It's just what God did for us. It's just normal, right, in some ways. And I don't know if if that's just to actually protect our brain from exploding over the reality of this amazing thing that's happened for us, or if it's just because, you know, it, it's just our reality. It's just, it's just what we know. So I don't know where you are on your faith journey. Maybe you're really new in your faith, and it actually really is mind-blowing for you still. Or maybe, like me, you're a little further in, and you're like, well, of course. Of course God became a man. Of course Jesus lived the life that I could not live, and he died the death that I deserved to die. I mean, of course, by faith, I am now rescued from the effects of sin and death. Of course, all of that is true, right? That's 
just the reality of where we are as Christians, right? So maybe I'm alone in that, or maybe it's become somewhat normalized for you too. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to step back and rethink through what exactly God did for us. Because while we may think, of course, of course, of course, the danger in doing that is that we can make God really small. We can normalize it so much that we actually don't think about it. And we can make God less than who he is. And I want us this morning, just for a moment, to remember that he is holy. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is righteous, and he is good, and he is faithful. And even though we chose to turn our back on him, he pursued us. He came after us. That's the God that we worship. And so I want us to grab onto that this morning. One of the ways that I want us to think through this is I want us to start thinking through exactly how God orchestrated his circumstances to become human. What he chose to do. See, our God in his pursuit of us and not leaving us to languish in sin and separation from him came after us in the most vulnerable of ways. He shrinks down to become an embryo, a tiny group of cells that have come together. Is there anything more vulnerable in all of human life than this tiny embryo? And then he chooses to implant himself inside the womb of a rural teenager an unwed virgin girl. Okay. Again, this story's a little bit normal for us, but can we just consider what this must have been like for Mary? Now, Mary's engaged. She's actually betrothed, and that's, that's like a step between engagement and marriage. In fact, to break the betrothal, there would have to be an official divorce, and she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And we learn that Joseph is faithful to the law. So in this day and age, Mary, this teen girl, has to go probably to her parents and to her future husband and have this conversation. Hey, so this really amazing thing just happened to me. I'm pregnant, but I've not been with a man, I promise. I don't know how that conversation went over with her parents, but let me just tell you, I think my daughters are pretty amazing, righteous, godly women, and if they came to me and tried to have that conversation with me, I would be like, mm-mm, don't you even try to pull that over because that is not how it works. See, I know how we get pregnant. That's not how it happens, right? And yet, she had to go tell this story the only person in the world that gets to tell this story, and she has to do it. Back in that day and age, the Mosaic Law stipulated that if a woman who was engaged to be married was found to have been with another man, do you know what the consequences were for that? Death. 
she should have been stoned to death. Stoned to death. That's terrible. A terrible way to die. And again, we read in Matthew 1.19 that Joseph was faithful to the law. So he could have had her killed. And the community around her would have said, wow, it's really terrible what happened to Mary. It's such a shame. I mean, we thought she was such a nice girl. But she deserved it. I mean, we're so sad, but she deserved it. But again, Joseph, who was faithful to the law, Matthew 1.19 says this, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he cared deeply for this woman. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So that's how Joseph was going to handle it. This unwed mother would stay unwed if it had been up to him. But God enters in and brings an angel to Joseph to let him know, hey, Joseph, what she's telling you is actually true. I have created this child, and I have placed it in Mary's womb, and I want you to stay the course and become his father. So God orchestrated his circumstances to become incredibly vulnerable to humanity, to enter in to circumstances that would always be questioned, always be wondered about, to enter into a family that was not a family of wealth and status, but a family that was struggling to make ends meet. See, this is what God chose, and it's just mind-blowing to me because if I was God... I would choose to be born into a palace with servants, placed in a golden crib, wrapped in the finest clothing, served the best the world has to offer, right? I mean, is this, this is what we want even now. And if we're God, the creator of all of this, wouldn't that be what we would want? The best of the best of the best of the human experience? But God chooses something different. He doesn't choose wealth. He doesn't choose power. He doesn't choose position. Let me read to you again very familiar story out of Luke. It says this, In the days of Caesar Augustus, a, ish, a decree was issued that a census should be taken. And so everyone went to their own town to register, and Joseph also went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Can we pause for a moment? Mary is almost ready to have a baby, and she has to travel to another city. Okay, we don't let women fly in their last trimester, (laughs) and poor girl has to get on a donkey and travel to another city. So while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, we don't know if Jesus was actually born in a barn like many of our stories want to tell us. But we do know 
that he was placed in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. Okay, I have seen some of you take your babies to the grocery store, and I know what happens. We wrap the entire cart in stuff now before we put our babies in the grocery cart, right? And Mary has to place her newborn in a dirty, germ-infested feeding trough for animals. There's no Lysol. There's no bleach. I'm sure Joseph tried to brush some of the stuff off, but this is all there was. God of the universe placed in a manger. These are the circumstances that our God chose for himself. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an, oh, oops, I thought I had chosen a palace. No, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it on purpose. And if that wasn't enough, immediately after his birth, he had to become a refugee with his family. Because Herod found out he had been born, Herod was threatened by this baby, and he wanted him dead. And so Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus flee to Egypt as refugees, displaced people, waiting for Herod to die so that they can go home. Again, I would have chosen power and prestige and wealth and comfort, the best our human experience has to offer. But Jesus, God, he chose to be nothing, a servant, the lowest that our human experience has to offer. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 sums it up really well. It says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, that's what our God does for us makes himself nothing. He does that for us so that he can know us and we can be know him more. See, if he was the king in the palace, we wouldn't be able to identify with that, would we? But we can identify with Jesus. So I was doing some research on trying to understand and put my mind around what the incarnation means, I picked up this book by Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I want to read two paragraphs to you out of this um, because I think he has a great illustration about what it means to be incarnate. And it's about a fish. And he says this, I learned about incarnation when I kept a saltwater aquarium. Management of a marine aquarium, I discovered, is no easy task. I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfa drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoals and exposed it to ultraviolet light. You would think, in view of all the energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. Not so. Every time my shadow loomed over the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, fear. <laughs> and although I opened the lid and dropped in food on a regular schedule three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. I could not convince them of my true concern. 
See, to my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions were too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy, they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing, they saw as destruction. To change their perceptions, I began to see would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish to speak to them in a language that they could understand. And a human becoming a fish is nothing compared to a god becoming a baby. I started to reflect on that more, and I thought, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't leave all of this to enter into this. I don't think I could do it. And this is what our God does for us. He leaves all of this to become confined and crammed and contained into an existence that is so different than he is. Does any one of us want to do that? That doesn't look like a life I want. Poor little guy, he's all alone. <laughs> it's because he's a beta fish, and you know beta fish will eat each other. So that's a different thing. <laughs> But that's where the analogy breaks down, so we stop there. <laughs> but that's what God does for us. He entrusts himself to us. He entrusts himself to us. He becomes the embryo that becomes the baby, that becomes the refugee, that becomes the child that is misunderstood, that becomes the adult who is tortured and killed. He entrusts himself to us. And can I just say, if he does that for us, then he can be trusted by us. If he could become that for me, perhaps he can be trusted by me. He can be trusted with our now, and he can be trusted with our not yet. That's what our God's incarnation, that's what him becoming human means. It means a lot more. It means that we enter into a relationship with him. It means that he saved us. It means that he goes to the cross and he provides a better future for us. But let me tell you, one of the things that also means is that we can trust him. Because if he would do that for us, Surely he can be trusted with our now and our not yet. Now, I know some of the stories that you bring in here. I've heard them. We have buried husbands, and we have buried children, and we have buried friends, and we have longed to have husbands or children or friends, and those longings have been unfulfilled, and we have stared disease in the face some of us right now, and we have stared pain in the face, and we have all of these deep longings and desires. We have children that have wandered away, that we desperately want to come back, loved ones that don't know him yet, and we on our knees cry out, Jesus, may they come to know you. We come in here with deep 
longings in our heart, don't we? Every single one of us. And even if today feels particularly bright and sunny and beautiful and great, there are still deep longings that we bring. Places where we cry out, Jesus, come, meet our needs. And do you know why we do that? Why we can come in here and say, Jesus, we need you, is because he has done that for us. Our God became a human. He experienced all of our pain, all of our sorrow. He knows intimately what it is like to be human. That's the God that we cry out to. We cry out to a God who has experienced love and he has experienced loss and he has experienced joy and he has experienced grief. And that is a God who can be trusted. He can be trusted with our now. No matter what, no matter how, and even if. Now I want to introduce you to my friend Camille. She's going to come and tell us a bit of her story about how she was invited to trust Jesus in a new way. Camille's been at IBC for 13, 14 years, and she is on staff in our 20s and 30s ministry. So let's welcome Camille. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, so is anyone a list maker? I am. I like writing things down. I like searching for the perfect app that can make the best list possible. I like the idea of accomplishing something and crossing it off the list. It signals progress, movement, completion. And when the things I have on my list don't get crossed off, they stay there, staring at me like I'm a failure. And as a child, I made a life list. Graduate high school, check. Go to college, check. Finish in four-ish years, Check. <laughs> Get a job. Check. Get married a little later than I wanted, but check. Get pregnant. No check. And no matter how hard I tried, I'm starting to get emotional. Sorry. Um, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't and still can't check that box. When I got married, we didn't rush to have kids. We were the first in our group of friends to get married, and so we kind of felt like there was no rush. And because I had checked everything else off my list, I just assumed that I would check that off too. I assumed that because I was a woman, that I would just be able to check it off, that I was physically able to do that. And I remember one night sitting on the edge of my bed after numerous failed attempts, doctor's appointments, shots, scans, probes, and exhausting procedures, thinking, God, what are you doing? I've been faithful, I've crossed everything off the list. Why won't you give me this? And then he reminded me that family can be built in a number of different ways. He reminded me that his own birth, as Jody was talking about, um, is not typical. Yes, Mary got pregnant, but I'm sure it wasn't in the way she planned. And I can guarantee that carrying the Son of God was not on her list. She was filled with fear at the idea of trusting God, and sitting on that bed, I was fearful about trusting him too. And reading those passages, the story of his birth, and remembering how Jesus stepped into our world in the most unique of ways helped me move from the edge of that bed into a place where my husband and I could sign up to be foster to adopt parents. 
I don't know why I'm so emotional, guys. Give me a second. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, but on a sunny day in July, a baby boy arrived at my doorstep. He was stinky. He had a diaper full of poop. He was screaming at the top of his lungs. And he had beads of sweat on his forehead, which were a marker of the Texas summer. And as soon as I opened the door, excuse me. As soon as I opened the door, a woman shoved him into my arms, and before I could say hello, she said, can you change him? So I grabbed him, took him back to the nursery that I had painted with some girlfriends, looked down at his little face, brown eyes, curly hair, chubby cheeks, and I said, do you want to stay here? I kissed him on the cheek and changed his diaper, and that day began a two-year journey from foster, from foster care to adoption for not just one little boy, but his sister, too. Okay, I'd love to say that that journey was easy, <laughs> that trusting Jesus was no longer a struggle, but in fact, there were many times that I shook my fist at the Lord and I said, pregnancy would have been easier. <laughs> and one of the most significant moments of trust that I can remember is our first family visit. So let me give you a few details about foster care before I tell you the story. Um, every, foster, every family is required to do visits. So you set those visits up, and usually for most foster families, you see the birth parents at court when they're kind of finalizing details or doing status updates. And when you have a visit, the way the offices are set up is there's a front door where the birth parents enter and a back door where the foster parents enter, and somewhere in between, a two-hour visit happens, except for our case. Our case was unique. Um, and so our kids were born in a small town, and when it came time for the first family visit, we drove an hour away, parked in a strip center downtown in front of a tiny CPS office with no back entrance, just a front entrance and a waiting room with four chairs. When I arrived, I began taking Levi, our adopted son and first placement, out of the car, meticulously checking him to make sure he looked good, healthy, that his clothes were clean, his diaper was clean. And while I was doing this, I can see the front door and the wall of windows and the four chairs lined up, and I can see the shape of a woman with her back to the parking lot sitting down in one of the chairs. I knew immediately it was his birth mom, and in the 30 seconds it took for me, for me to walk from the car to the door, I had a little come to Jesus meeting, where I questioned, why had we chosen to do this? How was I going to handle this visit? We were already so in love with him, and when I was at home, I could pretend that he was mine. And in those 30 seconds, I could decide to vilify her and come up with reasons why we were better parents. Or I could trust Jesus and remember that he came into this world in flesh to physically bring hope to both of us. To teach us both that through our separate families, he can create one new family and a new story. And when we finally adopted our kids, we decided to do an open adoption which meant face-to-face -face visits, phone calls, photos. It meant committing to a different family story and ultimately committing to trust Jesus with our future family. It doesn't get any easier after adoption, even though they're ours. Um, we still have just as many fears. Um, they're just different ones now. And what's funny is that my husband and I are talking about expanding our family now. And... Um, I don't know if I want to enter into it again. I don't know if I want to foster again. I don't know if I want to do infertility treatments again. But I do know that whatever happens, 
the only way that I'm going to get off that bed that I was on before is by trusting Jesus. Thanks, Camille. So now she gets to wrestle through some of the fears of the what-ifs. So it doesn't, you know, our circumstances are one thing and, and our, our future, what comes around the corner, what we face tomorrow, every single one of us holds fear and concerns about. See, the foster and adopt, it worked great the first time although it was really, really a hard journey. But what if it doesn't work out the second time? What if? Think a lot about our sister Tiffany right now. What if? You know, we had this powerful moment of prayer. We got on our knees and we saw God do something miraculous in front of our very eyes. But we don't know how that story ends. We don't know. But I'll tell you right now, it's good. Little baby David, he is stable as he can be. He is still very critical. Tiffany texted me um, this morning and just said um, they've given him a medication that's actually helping him to just rest. He's been really restless, which has been so hard on her mama's heart to see him want all of these things out of his body. And right now, he is resting, and that brings her great joy. But we need to pray. We need to keep boldly praying and asking God to do what only he can do. But what if? What if? Well, here's what I know. If the story doesn't end the way we want it to, and if Camille enters into another journey with either infertility or adoption, and it doesn't end the way she wants it to, and if your story doesn't end the way you want it to, there is still a better future coming. And Jesus will take us through every step of the way. He can be trusted by us. He will give us what we need for today. Philippians 4, 6 through 8 says, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. This is what he asks us to do. Present our requests to him. Do you know the better future that we have coming? John says this in Revelation 21. I just want you to to hear again about the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, praise God. There will be no more mourning or crying, or pain, do we not long for that day? For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is our certain future. This is 
what we have to look forward to. See, God became man, and he made his dwelling with us. But very, very soon, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more mourning, crying, or pain, and we will make our dwelling with him. And we will be with him for eternity. But until that day, until that day, we cry out to him and we cling to him and we have to trust him because he entrusted himself to us. He can be trusted by us. I want to leave you with this verse. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness. Do you know why? Because he became weak for us. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, we approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we will receive mercy and we will find grace to get us through this life until we get to our glorious future that awaits us. He will take care of everything we need and he will provide for us in the moment. We cry out to him. We boldly go before the throne. That is what we did last week and that is what I want us to do right now. Let us boldly go before the throne together as sisters, asking him for the things that are deeply on our heart. I'm going to give us some space to pray in quiet in just a moment, but let, me in, let us enter in together, and I'm going to pray for Tiffany as well. Gracious Lord Jesus, we come boldly before your throne. You, God incarnate, came to us and trusted yourself to us. It is in comprehensible for our brains and our hearts and our and our souls to grab onto that but lord jesus may we be overcome by the reality that you gave up so much for us and therefore we can trust you so right now lord you have told us to come before your throne of grace with confidence and so we come into there now into your throne room and we ask boldly for your healing for baby david Lord Jesus, would you place your hand upon this sweet little boy? Would you bring healing to him? Lord, strengthen his heart. Let him gain weight. Lord, provide another heart for him. Lord Jesus, strengthen Jason and Tiffany as they walk this weary road every day. Lord, give them grace and mercy. That's what you say you'll do. And so we ask that you would. And Lord Jesus, right now, every single one of us has something where we need your grace and your mercy. We need your healing. We need your hope. And so right now, in the silence of our hearts, Lord, we lift these things to you boldly with as much faith as we can. And we ask that you would intervene. So let's do that now, girls.
Lord Jesus, we lay these things at your feet. Hear the cries of our heart. You experience the depth of our pain, and so you know what we bring to you. You experienced the fullness of our human existence, and so you know what we need. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you. God, you did not let us go far. You pursued us. You came after us. And you entered into our existence in a way where we could understand you so that every time we see you move, we don't have to cower in fear. We can turn our eyes to you and lift our hands to you because you have made yourself known to us. So, Lord, we praise you this morning. We ask that you would answer our prayers. We ask that you would do it for your good and for your glory. And we ask this in the mighty and the strong name of Jesus and all God's women said, amen.